Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Reimagine the Future of Work podcast by Deloitte Southeast Asia. In this series of talks, we cover topics ranging from new ways of working to latest trends in work, workforce and workplace and the impact of technology on all of them. We also discuss how organizations across Southeast Asia are developing leaders, managing remote teams, as well as the demands on the workforce of the future. I'm Indranil Roy, your host, and I lead the Future of Work program for Deloitte Southeast Asia. A warm, warm welcome to the second episode of Reimagine the Future of Work podcast. We have a very, very exciting section today because we're going to talk about financial services, the banking industry. So as we all know, the competitive landscape of the banking industry is being challenged at an increasing pace with new entrants providing more innovative products and improved customer service through agility, digital, and analytics. But what is not talked about often is the asset side of the equation. The fact that these banks are being challenged by asset light business models. That's what we are going to talk about today. And we have with us two esteemed colleagues joining us for this podcast. So please uh, join me in welcoming Matt, Matt Bailey. Matt is a partner at Deloitte and has been over 23 years of experience in financial services. Matt uh, has worked with me on a number of different occasions, and he's an expert in everything related to banking, financial services, and operations. And joining us also from Australia is Phil. Phil Windus is a partner in Deloitte, overseeing the Occupier Advisory Team at Deloitte Australia and is a member of the Global Real Estate Transformation and Location Strategy Panel. So Matt and Phil, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Indra. Great. So listen, I, this is an exciting topic. Let's just jump straight into it. And I know that um, sometime back we did a, a piece of research where we compared a traditional bank, what do you call an incumbent bank, and a challenger bank. So let's start with these two words. Matt, in your mind, who is an incumbent and who is a challenger? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. They're very stereotypical views of the market. In some ways, think of it as a spectrum. On one side, you have a large incumbent bank that's been in business for you know, tens, if not hundreds of years. It's grown up through product platforms and has really grown organically, adding to its infrastructure systems course, over time. And that's created as a large bank that's incumbent in the market. On the other side, you have the challenger, who is a new entrant. They haven't been in business very long, 10 years, if not less. And they approach the problems, products, customers, and issues in the market very differently. And they've become the challengers. It's not black and white. It's a spectrum. There's lots of gray. I agree. I guess all the incumbents are trying to operate more like challengers, and the challengers are trying to learn a trick or two from the incumbents. Is that not? I think that's right. You know, going into this study, it's probably unfair to compare them because they're very different. And you know, often challengers will have a much narrower focus on the market, maybe one product. But I think there's definitely lessons that can be learned. And that's really the fascinating thing of what our research started to show. Yeah, talking about the research, I mean, just for um, to get everybody up to speed with some of the things that we found, the Challenger Bank that we compared, we took one incumbent bank uh, in Australia and a Challenger Bank in Europe, and we compared the two. 
some may say somewhat unfairly because one is in one part of the world and the other is another part of the world. But directionally, the results are quite stunning. So the PE ratio of the challenger bank was 170 and the incumbent bank was 13. Net promoter score for the challenger bank was 60 and for the incumbent bank was three. And if you look at customers per employees, 3,600 to 960. So if I just look at some of those numbers and understand what it is that the challenger banks are doing when they think about assets, that is fundamentally different to the view that incumbent banks have traditionally about what they call an asset, what they consider a good asset. Help us understand, Matt, a little bit about that question. What is the notion of an asset to a challenger bank? Yeah, I think it comes at, you have to start by looking at um, what's core to your business. And I think the challenger comes at it with a much cleaner slate. And so they step back in a clean slate and say, you know, what do we want to be? And they're taking a much bigger ecosystem view saying, you know, let's look at the wider ecosystem and, you know, what part of it do we want to play in? And just by definition, and this is where, you know, like I said, it's an unfair comparison, but there's certainly lots you can learn, is the big differences in assets. And I, we felt it was really fascinating is we looked at the assets and you're right, we compared two specific banks, but then we looked at a whole bunch of others, some quantitatively, some anecdotally, and we found that there were just big differences. And the three areas where they were really different would be work, workforce, and workplace. And so if I just go through those really quickly, uh, work. The challenger has, and to no fault of their own, I mean, this is a, a bank that's grown up over time, often adding you know, product system after product system. And so it has a large legacy infrastructure and they're all going through, you know, most of our clients now are looking at cloud. So, you know, getting there, uh, some more quickly than others, but the, an incumbent has large legacy platforms, whereas a challenger often is looking at it completely differently, whether it's a pay as, pay a service, you pay as you go type service. They're outsourcing portions of their model. Like I said before, they're playing only a node in a broader ecosystem and leveraging partners. So that the work's totally different. From a workforce perspective, the incumbent tends to have large incumbent workforces. And there's a kind of a, a default to want to own most of the value chain. And so the numbers of employees are large. And just to give you an example, one of my clients has 400 people doing various forms of risk governance. You know, that on an average salary of 150 Aussie dollars is 60 million just tied up in that workforce doing forms of risk governance. That's an incredible amount of money. And if you took that to the market, there's bound to be a different way to look at it. And that's what the challenger would do. So that's the workforce example. And then lastly, workplace, which is real Phil's domain, is we're just seeing, you know, difference between, you know, centrally owned, you know, big shiny HQs plus a, a broad branch distribution network versus the challenger is more nimble, more virtual, distributed workforce, and the real estate kind of goes along with that. Perfect. So, Phil, let me bring you into the conversation on that count. I think with COVID, almost every bank on the planet has started to question, what is my real estate footprint going to look like? Not just offices, but branch network. Um, but as you think about location and the context of location to work, how have things changed and what are some of the trends that you're seeing? Look, I think there's been an exceptional shift in thinking. You know, we keep hearing about the new normal and the old normal, and it's probably important to call out to just sort of align with some of the comments that Matt has made. 
you know, the old normal of banking was a system that typically tended to rely on, on in-person communication and transactions. 35 years ago, I was counting coins, rolling them up and walking into my local bank branch to deposit them into my account. I don't know if anybody in my team has ever been into a bank branch to deposit coins. In fact, I don't even know if here in Australia we use coins anymore, but that's probably not the case. But there's a different way of doing business. And I think that banks are now recognizing that they no longer need the brick and mortar as a channel to the customer base that they traditionally did. The incumbents that we're speaking to are having to sort of unwind these legacy decisions and look at you know, trying to move away from what was sometimes you know, 5, 10, 15 year lease or, or contract decisions with exceptionally um, expensive fit outs that were necessary to, to come to your customer. Whereas we're seeing now, you know, new entrants that are recognizing that they can have a totally digital platform to communicate and to maintain their customer relationship with. So there's been a total shift. Um, we're working with a bank at the moment that is in the process of really trying to examine its branch network to understand how it can continue to encourage, entice, or coerce customers into continuing to look at transactions outside of branches so that the only interaction that occurs in branch is one that is by necessity a face-to-face interaction or one where there's an expectation that there will be additional on-sell off the back of the course, the, the conversation that occurs there. Mentioning, I guess, the more of the corporate workplace, again, I think that the last 14 months have given everyone a rude awakening that work no longer has to occur necessarily in a corporate setting. I think that that has given rise to questions being asked by labor in really sort of thinking, was the commute that I've been doing for the last 15 years actually worth it? You know, what matters most to me? I think there's been this intersection of reflection that people have had around the world and, and a new ability to ask questions that they probably didn't have before, which is leading a lot of banks to rethink how space in a corporate office setting is really meant to be used. And so we're seeing a stronger reflection back onto you know, the core purpose of the office, which has traditionally um, you know, been collaboration, interaction, interaction socially, that is, and mentoring. But I think there's a new focus on really trying to understand what do we need to come to the office for? And workplace teams and banks are now recognizing that what used to be an incredibly expensive legacy cost can potentially be reimagined when opportunities are presented. So, Phil, that is really heartening to know. And I think as, unfortunately, uh, the, the pandemic has dragged on in several parts of the world, some of those behaviors are getting more and more entrenched, would you say? I think so. But look, I think it provides opportunity. You know, we've often looked at corporate real estate, that is the, the space leased by organizations that aren't in the business of investing in real estate, is one of the top three expenses incurred by banks or other organizations. And so, you know, even from a competitive advantage perspective, this is an enormous cost base that can now be re-explored to understand whether it's actually providing a return on the investment being made by these organizations. So it's fascinating that um, all of a sudden, the interest of the customer who is looking for more digital experiences, the interest of the employee who is more than happy to find the flexibility of working from anywhere, 
and the interest of the bank and the CFO is aligned. So perfect, right? Oh, well, if you look at the Singapore property market, I don't think anybody is losing sleep over that topic. But Matt, let me turn to you in terms of the productivity and the efficiency side of the equation, right? So as we move more from the old way of thinking about assets as physical assets and more towards human capital, innovation, a world of ideas and IP and assets that live in the digital world, is it difficult to maintain that kind of productivity increase when people are working in a distributed way or are your clients saying our productivity is doing just fine? I think there's a few points on productivity. There's been two different sets of studies that show increased and decreased productivity depending on when they were done via the pandemic versus more recent and also on the types of questions they ask. So I think that the jury is still somewhat out on really having some empirical data that proves or disproves productivity. The third aspect of this is we see a lot of personal bias to this question. And a lot of the leaders of organizations, broader than just banking, are casting their personal bias in terms of whether they think the organization is productive or not productive. And that's, that's a really fascinating thing. And so we'll have clients who say, you know, we want everyone back in the office, but it's a bit unclear on what data are they using to substantiate that point. So I think that's something to really explore. My clients are saying that in terms of the business as usual, the, the normal kind of processing productivity is significantly up. But in terms of what we call adaptive productivity or innovative productivity, in terms of more ideas coming through the pipeline and taking those ideas to market in a faster, more effective way, to Phil's point, sometimes you need to bring teams together face-to-face to be able to do that. Is that something that you are noticing as well with the work with your clients? Yeah, definitely. I think the nature of being productive together is one that's focusing on this more creative design innovation perspectives. And so let's use that time. Let's meet centrally so we can whiteboard a new growth strategy or a design of an operating model, for example. And let's use the other time distributed to do one-on-one check-ins or get through some more detailed design work that doesn't require as big a group. And so definitely. The other thing I would say, just in terms of your first classification, is we've been doing process work. And you know, my background is operations technology. So we've been doing process work my entire career. But I'm still surprised by the number of organizations that have strong process cultures. And I think why that's important is it goes to your first category about can they actually measure the activities that their teams are doing on a data basis? And and I think it is somewhat skewed to industries that are less quantitative. And so banking, it was more of a service, it's less product. They don't have that strong process culture that, say, manufacturing would have. And so there are a lot of parts of the banking set of services that are done internally that aren't very well understood and mapped. And so it's very hard to say, I've got five people working on this risk governance, whereas each one of them in managing the issues that are being cropped and what's the throughput through that process. So I think that that goes to what I was saying earlier around, there's a lot of different views here and I haven't seen anything in banking that really shows, certainly in the non-thinking part, whether productivity is up or down. Yeah, I mean, from a workforce perspective, one of the key words that keep coming up in our conversations is the idea of flow. And how do we create flow in the workforce working through multidimensional teams that are dispersed, 
but how do we create that throughput that you talked about, Matt, and the speed to market, for instance? So we're working with a bank that went from, you know, one of the unique things that they measure is how long does it take to take an idea from a whiteboard to the first iteration test in the market. And they used to do it three years back, like 60 days on an average. They brought it down to a week. And now they're getting it to a point where they can actually develop and deploy new features, or at least sub-features, within a day. And that's fascinating to me. I mean, this has happened just over you know, half a decade that we've gone from 60-day cycles to flow cycles of a day. And sure, I mean, if you compare with Amazon, they'll say we have a cycle of 15 seconds or something like that. But for the banking industry, this is, you know, revolutionary. And I just wanted to understand from Phil, if you think about what are the workplace implications, how do we create more flow in the organization? How do we create that speed where even if people are working from different locations, how do they connect? How do they collaborate? So what are you seeing from that perspective in your work? Well, we often talk about in trying to frame you know, broader questions around making predictions for portfolios going forward is you know, thinking about how work is conducted, where work is conducted, and then ultimately what real estate is required. And I think that you, the questions that you pose are, are really important. And typically the first types of questions that we ask clients, which effectively amount to what type of work actually requires corporate infrastructure to occur, but importantly, what type of work is just simply promoted in a corporate setting? The water cooler example where people find themselves innovating spontaneously because they happen to be at the same question speaking to a coworker about a, a shared problem or maybe a problem that isn't shared. I think the first step is in creating a workplace that people want to come to. And I think for a lot of people, that could be a space where it's quiet, free from family, from pets, from other distractions. That could be a setting that has specific furniture that encourages a particular type of work or, or you know, creativity to occur. It could be a place which fosters creativity through having coworkers in line of sight. I think all really important questions to ask. And I think that importantly, that will be a question that each individual organization will have. I think it's difficult to think that there is a one-size-fits-all future of work that then has a one-size-fits-all future workplace. You know, each of these questions need to be examined by organizations to really understand what place is required to facilitate the work that is expected to be conducted there. We've known for a number of years that workplace is of growing importance in being an attractor or an enabler of talent. I think more and more, given that people will be self-selecting between a number of different environments, not simply home or work, but you know, three, four, five, or more different options, I think work has to stand out that much more now. When you go into the office, I think it really has to represent a differentiating factor, a toolkit. It has to actually be unique in what it can provide people. And it may simply just be you know, a location, you know, in the middle of a series of amenities that people can enjoy in their time not working. But there has to be a differentiator. So we've talked about the human aspect of this, how you create flow through space, through teams, through a common set of goals and alignment, et cetera. 
Let's talk about the machine aspect of this. So Matt, adoption of cloud and automation. Do you see that accelerating in banking? Help us understand how cloud and automation fits into the asset light story. Yeah, it's somewhat like the real estate aspect that Phil's been talking through. This isn't something that just all of a sudden dawned on us. I mean, automation has been a conversation that we've been having with clients for a number of years, same with cloud. And I think the pandemic has really accelerated adoption and highlighted the importance of of having uh, a greater resilience in the workforce and having automation there to help provide that resilience, but equally improving processing times. And just like in cloud and being able to do more around releases and improve the DevOps aspects of what you're doing in a technology. So both have been worked on for a number of years. The pandemic has definitely accelerated them. And we're seeing clients full adoption of automation. And this is in cloud. But, but if I start with automation, automation is not just robotic automation. It's full automation from a robotics perspective, but equally just providing systems that automate activities that otherwise would have been done by people. And that's something that we're seeing a full adoption of in our clients. Cloud is the same. It's something now that people have been able to circumnavigate some of the early issues and be able to just fully adopt cloud. And with cloud, then you're unlocking yourself from the additional premises of vast data centers, are you not? You are, and that's providing much more of an ability to have on-demand services, which is, again, accelerating the overall release of software and functionality. So that's fascinating. A lot of our traditional ideas around infrastructure and fixed assets and property and offices and data centers, a lot of that value can be unlocked as we go into this way of thinking and way of working and these kind of operating models. What are some of the risks that you see? I mean, cybersecurity keeps coming up every time I talk to a client. Is that something, Matt, that you see some of your clients navigating well? Yes, but it's very much a moving feast. It's something that's evolving. And you know, we see the cyber threats and risks increase with every you know, passing day, week, and month. Our clients are getting better at dealing with it, but it's an evolving threat. And so it's something that we as a business help our clients a lot with around thinking through their cyber risks and how to properly mitigate them. Yeah, and availability of skill set is another risk or constraint, whichever way you want to look at it, that keeps coming up on the workforce side of the equation. How long does it take to build operations staff into engineers who can do automation as well, right? How long does it take our product teams graded or upskilled rather? to be able to look at embedding risk into product design. So those are obviously things that we will need to address as we move towards this asset light world. Is lock-in periods for long-term kind of property leases, et cetera, is that a constraint that you see, Phil, or our clients working around that? I think they traditionally were. I think the combination of market-driven, lengthy lease terms coupled with significant capital investment into fit-outs typically resulted in relatively static properties and therefore relatively static decisions. I think more what we're starting to see around the world, and probably this has happened in supporting organizations to work through this, space as a service has been growing in terms of the operators and, and players who are challenging traditional tenant-landlord lease relationships, providing space on demand 
when required and really where required. You know, we heard a lot about the rise of WeWork in the last five years. There are an enormous number of competitors to rework building up in local markets that are providing both organizations with the ability to provide flexible space, but also individuals, memberships, you know, to a corporate setting that they otherwise potentially couldn't afford themselves if they were contractors, freelancers, or, you know, others that typically didn't have a corporate environment. So I think the rise of tenant demanded flexibility will really start to shine through over the next few years, particularly in real estate markets that are becoming more tenant-friendly, where tenants can actually name prices as opposed to take prices. Fantastic. So everything as a service, space as a service, infrastructure as a service, risk as a service, that's the world that we are heading into. And frankly, the point that you made right up front, Matt, in terms of the challenger banks that did not have kind of the legacy constraints that the incumbent banks were dealing with, were perhaps able to make a faster move to this world. And maybe they were designed from day one to be in this world. So I want to bring our attention back to the incumbent banks. And what advice would the two of you have for incumbent banks who are you know, somewhere between, let's say, asset light, digital native, and very traditional? What's some advice that you would give for them to make this transformation faster, better, and in a more secure way? I think the first thing to do is just get a perspective. There are ways to just look at your current operating model and assess where are you. And if you go back to the research we did and the hypotheses we created, the heavy assets are really around work, workforce, and workplace. So I, I would start there and just to have a perspective on against each one of those categories where are you as an institution? And in that that spectrum of you know, the classic incumbent through to the new challenger, do you have that large internal workforce? An example would be you know, a change team. You, know, you have a large internal consulting team. We see a lot of incumbents, but not necessarily in the challenger banks. Challenger banks are much more greater variable workforce that they're able to pull on and use when they need it. And so you would measure your team's and see where you are in that spectrum. And you do that against those three categories. So I would start there. And then I think it's exploring those options. There are examples of incumbents that have done the switch to challengers really well. And they've picked off aspects of their broader operating model and said, you know, we want to create a digital bank in their brand or in a different brand. And they've been able to recreate aspects of that asset light model for that part of their business. So there are ways to do it, but first step is do a diagnostic, understand where you're at, and then explore options to come up with a view of how do you get to be more asset-like. And I like that framing that you just gave, Matt, with work, workforce, and workplace, because it takes the attention away from the traditional functions within banks. It, typically, when you're doing operating model work, different functions would have uh, different perspectives and views on you know, how their function should operate in the future. But when you use words that are, you know, neutral to the functional language or different from the functional language, like work, how work gets done, the workforce and the people and the workplace, including branches and offices and all of the areas where the work gets done, I think that gives a very different language for all of the bank to come together and work on the operating model together, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. My one caveat would be 
you don't need to boil the ocean. You, you know, you don't need to do the entire enterprise. And, and as you know, a lot of our clients are, are big organizations. So, so you know, you can start with a, you know, a product area, a business, a function, and you can look at it that way and then just see for that part of the business, you know, where, where are you vis-a-vis challengers and some of your peers that maybe are doing it a bit better than you are. Terrific. Phil, from your perspective, what are your thoughts? What are you telling clients to make the transition to this new world? Well, well, luckily, I think they'll align to Matt's comments earlier. I think the first recommendation I'd make is to be bold. More often than not, most decision-making that related to workplace was based off of years and years and years of data and certainty and precedent. We're now in a new world where we don't have the luxury of that information. And so I would be strongly encouraging organizations to rebuild their databases. And that's not just simply looking at the utilization of space, that's engaging with staff and with customers to really you know, understand what they need going forward. I think the second point also was just mentioned, but we have more often than not seen the successful implementation of projects that result in workplace transformations demand a cross-functional team. I think that business often struggles because they just can't stand up cross-functional teams. You know, the functions are too busy working independently, siloed or otherwise, but working on their own objectives and oftentimes may struggle in really trying to gain a broader view of, let's say, you know, the span of enabling services, talent, IT, operations, and property to really be able to facilitate significant transformation. Obviously, that's once an initiative starts to to actually get traction, but I'd strongly be be encouraging that cross-functional view once implementation is being approached. Can I make one more point, Janelle? I think one of the hypotheses that Phil and I and others in the team, yourself included, have been talking about is is we have a view, and it's a hypothesis that's going to be tested as, as we go to market with our survey, that real estate could be the trigger event. So the workplace part of those three could be the trigger event that leads to greater workforce and work changes. And we know a number of our clients are looking at their workplace and their real estate footprint. It's such an opportunity to say, you know, we are moving out of this building. We are shrinking our branch network. We are doing something of that nature. Now is the time to think about what does that mean to my workforce and to the work we do? Yeah, I love that idea of using one of these as a trigger event, acknowledging that the full benefit of this transformation comes when all three work together, but using one of them as a trigger event. And I love the idea of real estate as a trigger event because a lot of our clients have seen the practicality of that because there are obviously certain dates that you want to get to in terms of managing or renewing your leases. And there is a certain level of urgency that you can put on the table because the numbers are huge. And I think that through our discussion today, what became clear to me is that the time is now. If you look at the comparison between challengers and incumbents, challengers are able to get four times the number of customers served per employee while they get 20 times the NPS score. So that is absolutely amazing. I don't think there has been a point in time in the banking industry where you could have that much of a cost advantage 
when it comes to serving customers and have that much of a customer satisfaction advantage at the same time. And to me, it is amazing that if you look at the expenses per customer, right? So it's five times for incumbent banks than for challenger banks. So the alignment between the CFO's agenda in terms of return on asset, the alignment between the marketing and the sales team's agenda in terms of better customer service and better customer acquisition retention, the employee's agenda, which is to find more flexibility and joy and meaning at work, and the customer's agenda to have a better experience without leaving their living room and get all the banking done at the, at the push of a button. These four things are coming together. And I think that banks that choose to look at this and say, we will continue our, our transformation in a siloed way, will continue not to be you know, particularly bold, as Phil, you mentioned, because most banks, when think of their transformation, are thinking 10% improvement by function, I think are missing the point. I think that's right. And I think picking up on the point Matt made, where these can often be triggered by a real estate decision that typically has a budget attached to it. This is the time to take advantage of commercial real estate uncertainty and markets and counterparties that are desperate for the certainty of a transaction to occur in most major markets around the world. So couldn't echo your point any louder, Indro, that the time is now and the opportunity is ahead of us. The time is now and the opportunities ahead of us. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Phil. This was a fascinating conversation. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. And for everybody who is listening, look out for episode three of the Reimagine the Future of Work podcast series coming soon, but a very, very special one today. And hope you enjoyed listening to this. Matt and Phil, thank you very much. Thanks so much. Thanks, Indra. You have been listening to the Reimagine the Future of Work podcast by Deloitte Southeast Asia. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher.